You might want to keep that passage open. And um, we are thinking about God's church. We've been thinking about uh, the biblical teaching on church for the last few weeks, uh, particularly from uh, the letter to the Hebrews. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the question, what is church? Last week, we looked at why go to church. So those who weren't here last week, you might want to find out um, the answer to that question. No, I'm joking. Actually, it would be good to work it out. Uh, The question this week is how are we to be the church? And that's our question today. Uh, Thinking back to Edwina's um, little activity with the kids, the charades or the charades, uh, it's easy to depict a monkey, a giraffe, a little bit harder to depict a jellyfish, but they got there in the end. But then you say, okay, how would you act out the church? Right? And the easy answer is that we all know is wrong if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, is the kind of the steeple and the cross and, you know, and then we'll go, oh, that's a church building. Yeah, that's the church building, isn't it? How do you act out the church? Uh, you might want to act out, you know, praying. You might want to act out you know, falling asleep in a sermon. I don't know what it is. You could, whatever the things that would be associated with church. Well... Speaking of falling asleep in a sermon, um, this particular message today might be, might be a little bit longer than normal. I'm not going to mention any names. Maybe use this as a challenge to, um, to work out different methods of concentrating for more than 15 minutes. Okay? <laughs> just giving you, just giving you a, a heads up, and you'll be tested at the end. No, you won't be. The... Um, Today we're thinking about how to be the church. Now, the first thing that I think um, when we talk about what is the, you know, what, not, it's, not, what, not, it's not the mission of the church or the purpose of the church, but what is the church, how, how would you, uh, what are some of its defining characteristics? I think nearly all of us here, and probably all of us in the wider non-Christian world, outside of church, probably would come up with a similar kind of answer. And that is, our defining characteristic should be love, okay? I think we'd all kind of have some variation on that. And people outside the church, when they are critical of the church, they're often critical because we are not being the people we're supposed to be. Uh, that's not a very loving thing to do. Or well, the church is very judgmental. It should be loving. There's an understanding, I think we all agree, that we are called to be a loving community. But, as we might have heard over recent years, there are slogans like, uh, love is love, which seems to suggest that love is intuitive it's instinctive, you know when you see it, it doesn't need to be defined. Love is just love. But the more we think about love in the broader sense, we realise that love isn't intuitive. We don't instinctively love people all the time, do we? We have to choose to love. And so today we are going to be thinking about the biblical teaching of being the church, being a church that is marked by love, but what that means. So you'll notice uh, that today's passage begins in verse 1, I think with a heading that the rest of the verses fall under. 
as I was reading it before, you see these six verses and they seem a little bit like, if you know you've been in an exam and you run out of time and it's like pens down and you, you just jot down all the things that are in your head quickly and just to, you know, you just get it all down just to hope you get a few more extra marks. Sometimes I thought these, these remaining verses in Hebrews are a little bit like that. It's like the author's just kind of, oh, and this, and this, remember the prison, remember this. I don't think that's what, he, what, what he's doing. I think today's verses actually flow out from under the heading of what it means to love. But we're going to focus, first of all, just on that opening verse, keep on loving each other as brothers. Because I think this is where we start to unpack why our church, our community, God's people gathered in the name of Jesus are called to have a particular kind of love. Have a look at that opening phrase, keep on loving each other as brothers. We see there brothers and sisters, or brothers, brothers and sisters. The Greek word for this kind of love is the word that we name our cream cheese after, Philadelphia. Brotherly love or love of the brethren. We see that is a very key idea in Hebrews. And we might think of brotherly love, brother sisterly love. It's just like mateship, friendship. Yeah, brother, good on you, brother. There's that, the idea of brother is profound in the letter to the Hebrews. Have a look at these verses back in chapter 2, um, verse 11. I've got them up on the screen. Talking about Jesus. But the one who makes men holy, and I think this is men as in mankind, are those and those who are made holy are of the same family. See, the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or brethren. Verse 12, I will declare your praises to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Now, do we see here that when, when we're told to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters, it's not just, oh, we're all one family. We have a source of our love, which is that Jesus is our brother. He's not just our Lord and our Saviour. So the source and the shape of our love is Christ-like. So, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and your rescuer, if you have said, I'm not going to be able to perfectly do this, but I want to commit my life to you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Saviour, please forgive me. I want to live for you and not for myself. If that is you, and if you've done that at some point in your life, and that is where you stand with Jesus, then you are part of the wider family, Jesus' family. So everyone around here, if you look around, we won't do it because we are not culturally designed to look at other people in the face, but that's okay. We are all family if we are in Christ. Now that is going to play itself out significantly, but before we go any further, we could leave today's message at that point. How to be the church? Love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so if you walk away with one thing today, you could walk away with that. How are we to be the church? Love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, you could go home and you say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to love um, 
people at BHAC as brothers and sisters in Christ. Great. So what is Christ, what's Christ like love? Well, and I might list a whole bunch of my hobby horses, <laughs> the things that I think are really important to Christ, you know, and I end up cr- creating a, a brother and sisterly love that kind of just suits my preferences and my personality. And we could all do that. But what we have in these verses today is the author, I think, unpacks what it looks like to love, a, to be a community of brotherly and sisterly love. So, we're going to have a look at these uh, verses. I think there's four of them, four areas that this uh, passage talks about that are transformed when we start like, loving each other as brothers with a brotherly and sisterly brethren love. Uh, and the first is this love transforms our homes. See verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, we're going to get to the second part of that verse in just a moment, which is a little bit strange. But the first part sounds a little bit like advocating stranger danger, but the opposite of it. But what is actually, we see here, it's interesting, the, the Greek word for brotherly love is Philadelphia, love of brethren. But what we see here is that keep on with the Philadelphia, but don't forget the Philozenia, where we get the word xenophobic. Xenophobic is fear of the stranger. Philozenia is love of the stranger. So it goes, don't forget the Philadelphia, keep on, keep with the Philadelphia and don't forget the Philozenia. So what, what we're seeing at the very beginning here is that Brotherly love is not a, in, a, like a closed circle. Brotherly love that is Christ-like is a, actually an outward-focused, stranger love. And this, I think, flows on with the... We get the word hospitality from entertaining strangers. That's where the word, our, our word hospitality comes from. And so we have this strange little phrase there, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, what's going on there? I'm not going to spend too long on that particular phrase, but it is likely to be a reference back to the Old Testament uh, where there, was, there are a number of examples where, for example, people like Abraham, you read in uh, Genesis chapter 18, he welcomed, showed hospitality to these messengers that came, and Abraham was blessed. Without knowing it, he was actually welcoming these strangers who were the Lord's messengers, so an angel is just a messenger from the Lord. It doesn't always just refer to the angel that's flying in with wings or all this. It's actually just a messenger from the Lord. Now, what is the point of the author mentioning this little reference to this Old Testament thing here in this part? Well, I think why the point is, is that this is an encouragement for the church to be as wide and generous in our love and hospitality towards those who are not brothers and sisters in Christ, as wide as possible because we don't know the way in which God could be using the people that we welcome in. We don't know. Uh, in Adelaide, uh, one of the um, families that gave us the warmest welcome when we arrived, we used to live in Adelaide for a few years, and uh, was the family called the Whites, uh, the White family. They've come over here a couple of times. And they, uh, it was one of those places, those houses where the door seemed always open, people were coming and going because their hospitality was just incredible. So um, wife and husband team, really, Carolyn and Paul, would be just so, so, had so much joy to welcome anybody into their house. There's always something cooking, something going on. It wasn't like they had these 
five-star meals, but they had this joy of welcoming people into their house, and it was matched with an unashamed talk about the love of Jesus. And they would host uh, growth groups, the weekly groups that we... And every group they hosted, they wouldn't lead the group, they just hosted at their place. <laughs> it was kind of a strategy. We'd, whatever group you wanted to grow, you just put it at the, their house, and it would always grow, and it, you'd always have to keep splitting the group because their hospitality and welcoming of strangers in the name of Jesus was just overflowing and people just wanted to be in whatever group, didn't matter the leader or the members at that house because there was a Christ-like philozenia going on in that particular house. It's very, very powerful. So our homes, the first place where the love of Christ is, will transform, the more that we start thinking about who Jesus is, his kind of love, the more we'll become less restrictive and exclusive and more inclusive. Uh, the second area we see is in verse 3, which is uh, appropriate for today, is that we are our, our prayer life, what we think about, particularly in relationship to Christians around the world, is transformed as we start to think about brotherly love brother and sisterly love. So verse 3, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. I don't know about you, but I struggle with the out of sight, out of mind syndrome. So uh, my thoughts and prayers typically are directed towards the things that are right in front of me at the moment or the things that are coming up in my week. I love going to Minyeri uh, twice a year up to Arnhem Land. And, but even between those visits... Uh, even visiting them face-to-face regularly, I find that my mind can drift and I feel like it can go for months, weeks, months, not really knowing what's going on in that community that we've committed to pray for. Uh, Today is the International Day of Prayer, as Adwina mentioned, with the persecuted church. We're going to be hearing about uh, some stories with that a little bit later. Um, But it's interesting, I'm not sure of the history of the phrase, but I think the day used to be called International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church and Open Doors seems to intentionally and deliberately remind us every year that as Christians, possibly based on this verse, <laughs> that our prayer is not for them in a detached way but we're praying with them. And as you'll hear in a video that will come up a bit later, the prayer is not to be removed from persecution or removed from places of difficulty but that God will use them in their places of difficulty to proclaim the name of Jesus. So we're praying with the persecuted church. So a love that is transformed by Christ is a love where our prayers and our thoughts, in a real sense, not just the media sense where the politicians say thoughts and prayers, in a real sense are going to those brothers and sisters that are not just in our immediate uh, circle. Uh, The third one. First one, these first two are probably not particularly controversial. Uh, most, most people, whether you're Christian or not, would probably be okay with a church that loves in that way, with open homes, generous, and also a, a church that loves and prays about those who are being uh, persecuted in the name of Jesus. This is where it gets a little bit... This is where the love uh, starts to take a, a fork in the road. Our attitude to marriage and sex. According to these verses, as a church that's committed to loving each other as brothers and sisters, we'll have a transformed understanding of the relationship between love, marriage, and sex. Now, if we were to believe uh, the media over the last five or ten years, we might be tempted to think that the church 
uh, for the church to be the church, better hurry up and get with the 21st century and update its understanding of marriage. It's, it has very rigid views on sex and sexuality. It's far too judgmental, and uh, people should be able to do, choose what they can do with their own bodies and all that kind of thing. Now, today is not the time we're going to have a discussion, about, particularly about how Christians are to approach the subject of marriage in relation to the wider society, uh, especially when we're talking about those who are not even wanting or proclaiming to be followers of Jesus. There's, there's a place for that kind of discussion. What I'd like to do for today is to reflect on these specific instructions that are given to Christians and how Christians, as a community of love, are to live out these particular instructions related to marriage. So have a look there at verse um, 3. 4, sorry. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, I take uh, by all, this is referring to specifically all Christian brothers and sisters. The author is not writing this to instruct the church, particularly on how they should approach public policy or anything like that. So, as we seek to live these uh, Christ-shaped lives, First, as our first category is brothers and sisters in Christ. The author is asking us, within that brother and sisterly love, marriage needs to be honoured. Not just by the married, but by all. Now, scholars who have looked at the background of this letter uh, speculate, and there's probably a good deal of um, grounds for this, that there might have been, amongst the original readers, a temptation to think that now they are all Christian brothers and sisters that marriage is a thing of the past. You know, we're all one. There's no Jew, Greek, all that kind of stuff. So marriage is an, a, a thing of the... We, it, it's really no longer particularly relevant. We're all, we're all married to Christ and the church, all that kind of thing. Marriage, that's a thing of the past. It's all part of the old ceremonies, the old way of doing things. And no, the author is saying, no, m- marriage is to be honoured by all, whether we are married or not. Now, one of the constant criticisms uh, levelled at Christians in the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years are that they are outdated when they say that, or advocate, particularly young people or anybody, that you should not have sex before marriage. It's a bit outdated. And some will say, some people who have grown up in a church, there's nowhere in the Bible, certainly Jesus doesn't say, there's nowhere in the Bible that says you should not have sex before marriage. And in a sense it's true, there's nowhere in the Bible that says you should not have sex before marriage in those words. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you should not look at pornography or anything like that. But let's have a look at this kind of way of thinking. In one sense, if someone says, why should Christians... Here's a way of thinking. Christians will often say, actually, we need to get with the times and not be so hung up on not having sex before marriage because, and this is the answer that's often given, well, look, in this day and age, marriage is, well, it's a big thing, big financial commitment, big deal for young people these days. There are so many barriers. You've got to find their first home, getting financially stable, having jobs, all these kind of things. So marriage is just put off for so long and it's just... And and, and isn't it good for a couple to be confident sexually before they get married, all those kind of things? And... It, it married, so, so and, and, and getting divorced, it's such a hassle to go through. And so, 
this idea that marriage is this huge thing, but sex is just fun, it strengthens relationships, it's loving, it doesn't cost anything. So what's this big deal about, you know, separating, having no sex before marriage or whatever the thing is? This is the thing, this is the way the Bible teaches about sex and marriage, and this is where I think there's a big misunderstanding and why we don't find a command, don't have sex before marriage, because when the Bible talks about marriage, it uses it almost interchangeably with sexual relationships. That is, God has designed our bodies so that sex is a bodily commitment to another person. Whether it's physiologically and bodily a commitment to another person. Whether you've made that conscious or verbal commitment in marriage, I mean, that's why it is. So why is it that somebody who is, uh, and apologies if this touches a nerve, but why is it that somebody who from a young age uh, is, is raped, the trauma of that will stay with them for the rest of their life compared to possibly someone who's mugged with no sexual contact at all? Why is it? Because we know instinctively that sexual relationships, there's, there are boundaries about it. We don't just, it's not just like any other kind of physical contact. So marriage and sex are actually, in a way, physiologically, having sex before marriage with multiple parties, like married, divorce, married, divorce, married, divorce, which is why often sexual relationships are much, much harder to get over than relationships which have had no sex. Now, I just want to take a moment here just to acknowledge that this is a probably a personal area for every single person in this room, and we all have our, um, our, our sexual histories that we are not proud of in different ways. And I just want to acknowledge that, that, that God is a God rich in mercy. God is a God of grace. And that when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for our sexual past. And if we're not willing to give our sexual past to Jesus so he can take it to him on the cross, in what sense do we mean that Jesus died for us? If you really believe that Jesus died for you, then you'll be willing to say, Jesus died for your sexual past. Rather than what is the common way that we like to not make, not, not uh, be burdened, burdened with regrets and things like that, we'll often say things, we'll try to rewrite our history so that it wasn't as bad as we think and it wasn't as bad as we might have thought it was, so that we're not burdened by guilt and regret and actually the beautiful thing of the gospel is that we have grace, forgiveness, a clean sheet, we, can't, we don't have to rationalise our past so we feel okay with ourselves. We can take it to the cross. But what we see here very clearly, the New Testament church, not the Old Testament, the New Testament church, as well as the Old Testament, but the New Testament are called to honour marriage, keep the marriage bed pure, flee from sexual immorality. And then what we see here, God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. We can add to that, God will judge the greedy, the idolater, the disobedient to the parent. These things matter. We are to take them to the cross and live lives aligned with Christ. 
Uh, I just wanted to, um, if, if this is, if you'd like to, th- I think we're particularly at a, really at a crossroads now as Christians where, uh, not just in society, but where we're really finding the issue of uh, um, loving same-sex relationships uh, a real vexed issue in the church as Christians. How do we respond uh, in a non-judgmental way, but without compromising our own convictions? And, and I just wanted to recommend two books um, to you uh, that, uh, that have been recently published um, that I think uh, would be helpful if you want to, and I'll email these around if you don't get this, um, these names. The first is by a guy called David Bennett, War of Loves. He's a Sydney guy, uh, ex, um, uh, an ex-gay uh, activist, who's an agnostic who came to know Jesus, and this is his story. This was only released a few, I think a year or two ago. He's talking about how finding his identity in Jesus transformed uh, his understanding uh, of... He's still... He's not, not like he's saying he's not, no longer same-sex attracted or anything like that, but he now lives for Jesus his Lord and not his sexual identity. The second is uh, uh, from American Rosaria Butterfield. She was, uh, she's an English professor, a former atheist, a lesbian, LGBT rights activist who came to know Jesus, and very interestingly, through the ministry of hospitality. So through that open, not through the front door of the, the churches we would see, but through getting to know some people in the neighbourhood very well who were Christian, and she, over a number of years, could see what it mean, meant to be a brother and a sister of Christ rather than finding her identity uh, in, in her sexual identity. So I'd recommend those two books, um, and if you didn't get those names down, I will email them around uh, during this uh, week. Um, so that's the, that's the third thing. The fourth uh, and final thing uh, that we are caught, that, our, that the love of um, brotherly love transforms in a community is our attitude to um, money and contentment. See there verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Uh, one of the people in ministry in Adelaide, uh, I'm using Adelaide examples so I don't, so you don't, can't guess who they are if I'm talking about people here, but he was quite a, a challenge to me. I found out inadvertently that he, he was a minister that every single year he and his wife would sit down and work out how they could give a higher percentage of their income away to gospel ministry each year. Uh, and they've managed to be able to do it each year of their, of their married life. And it's taught them contentment in what they have. That we all acknowledge that we, have, we are so materialist. We, we are, we're in the top 1% of the world. We all acknowledge that, how blessed we have been. And so this couple would deliberately and intentionally try to be more generous each year to remind themselves of how much in abundance they have. They're not just, scra- they're not just sitting on the poverty line or something like that. Uh, that was that, their particular way of constantly teaching themselves contentment and a detachment from a love of money. It's not, it's not that you shouldn't have money or be involved with money. It's a detachment from a love of money. But I think the issue we're also wrestling with, some people are not actually over the finances. Sometimes it's um, one person in the household knows exactly what the bank balance is and someone else is completely oblivious and will, will keep spending until they're told to stop. I don't know. You're probably all thinking of that particular person. But anyway... <laughs> But I think we all struggle with contentment, don't we? Uh, we are typically a goal-driven people, and, and wherever that is, we might be worried about how our investments are going. 
I think a lot of things, particularly around here, we're often envious of people who might live in a better street than we do, who have a slightly better house than us, slightly better suburb, and we're always looking for the day when we can upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. And that's often tied to our money. But the call for a, a church that genuinely has a brother and sisterly love that is tied to Christ's love, the more we're tied to Christ's love, the less we'll be looking to all these other things to find our fulfilment. If you're anything like me, contentment is a real thing that we can struggle with. Always looking for the next thing. Well, there are the four. Just before we finish, look how this passage finishes. Why can we do this? Not because of our own strength. Not in our own strength, but because God has said, verse 5 and 6, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So, when we know what church is, those united to Christ, gathering in his name, we know of the presence and the power of God is with us, not just for now, but through eternity, which gives us assurance and it should help us to be fearless, to not be people of great worry and anxiety, but fearless people. Why don't we take a moment to come before God now in prayer?